Greetings Scrapper fans and welcome to the latest episode of Match of the Week, the podcast series within the larger Let Me Tell You Something podcasting universe in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross take it in turns to pick a match from the wide world of wrestling to discuss for maybe reasons of culture, historical significance, mirroring of a more recent event. Or just because it's a match that one of us loves or one of us is always meant to watch and is going to rope the other person into it. <laughs> this one, I guess it, it almost falls into the category of something I've always wanted to watch because it is my pick today. And instead, it, the reason it bumped up the viewing order was unfortunately due to external circumstances that are already a little bit in the past. And that's even before... This episode eventually goes out at some point in the nether, in the un- unknowing period of the future where Dave Meltzer has decided he's not going to rate something five stars this week. <laughs> See you in 2018. Wait, no, 2028. Oh, God, I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh, that was horrid. Ah. When our visions of a distant future, we suddenly realise we're in a relatively recent past. We know we're in trouble. Yeah. Oh, that was awful. Sorry, God. Sorry, listeners. I'm having a little bit of an existential moment. But, uh, Lorcan, carry on, please. <laughs> well, what might also make you have existential moments are reflecting over the passing of someone who meant something to you. And um, whilst this figure didn't mean much to either of us on, like, a, a large scale, it wasn't a big factor in our lives... As wrestling fans, I think we both had warmth and affection to this gentleman. And whilst his passing is very sad, compared to who we'll be talking about next week, it's a relatively muted reflection of mortality because it's Terry Funk who we're talking about, who at the point that we both got into wrestling, I mean, when I got into uh, wrestling, well, when I first saw him in wrestling, which was quite a while into my fandom... No, actually, you would have seen him in WCW. Basically, by the time he was involved in wrestling... Well, he retired the year I was born. His first <laughs> retirement was the year I was born. So that gives you an idea of how many more years he was able to clock after that. Most of them spent going into the ring and wrestling. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, to try and phrase it as I was saying best, uh, for me, the, the first time I really became super aware of Terry Funk was his run in WWF during the Attitude Era in 1998. And at that point, he was being referred to as middle-aged and crazy. I think he was 54 at that stage. And so the version of Terry Funk I think both of us came to know was that wild, brawling, crazy middle-aged man. But the amazing thing about Terry Funk is how many different chapters he had to his life as a wrestler. And one of the ones I've always wanted to explore was the point where he was essentially designated the prize that meant at least in north america you're perceived as the best wrestler in the business and as this match shows it was a role that took you beyond north america to other important global destinations one of them being japan so what we have here is nwa world heavyweight champion terry fung defending his title against the hot young prospect of all japan pro wrestling who they see as the future of their promotion after giant baba eventually puts his boots up or at least steps back from the main event scene and that is one jumbo saruta (laughs) a man who we became huge fans of for his not his young upstart period but his grumpy old man period (laughs) where he was feuding with mitsuharu masara and the rest of the super generation army and that was so there was two levels to my wanting to watch this and cover this match for match of the week even before the passing of terry funk because i wanted to see nwa world heavyweight champion terry funk 
in theory meaning to be the best in-ring wrestler, not just a brawler, but overall, the best overall wrestler, the one that the WA can trust to go to every territory across the globe and put on a show and do the work that's needed to either draw in the crowd or make the local person look good or in most cases do both of those things. Mm. And that's his role in this match. And also I wanted to see Young's Jumbo Sarusa, where he is in the position that Mitsuhara Masao was. Essentially, he is to Funk, in many ways, what Saruta becomes to Misawa. Yeah. He is the huge mountain to climb, the the figurehead to topple. The obstacle to overcome, that sort of thing. Yes, the obstacle to overcome. The final boss, essentially. And that is what the NWA World Champion was at this point. He was every territory's final boss. And that's one of the funny things watching this match. And other times that we've watched matches where it is the touring NWA World Champion. Like our first match of the week choice, which was Luthers against Buddy Rogers. The early days of the Meltzer Five Star Project where we were seeing Ric Flair... Not just in Jim Crockett, but defending the title against Barry Windham in Florida. And you can also, I think we've discussed, although I don't think we've ever covered a match, but we've discussed like his work in World Class, or when he would go to Memphis occasionally to do stuff with Jerry Lawler. The funny thing with being NWO World Heavyweight Champion, even though in theory that means you're the top guy, you're the top figure in wrestling, you are really no longer a protagonist. You are everyone else's antagonist yeah the key to this match is how does terry funk successfully defend the nwa world championship but make jumbo saruta look as good as possible and that's essentially the role for the nwa champion wherever they went for rick flair that would often mean just going to 60 minute draws all over the (laughs) all over the place but for this one and i suppose maybe if it had been giant baba that's Terry Funk had been in the ring with, maybe that's how they would have booked it or booked it as a double count out. Oh, quite possibly. Because I was looking it up and the way that this is listed in Cage Match, this is listed as actually part of a series of test matches for Jumbo Saruta. So going in, it's almost like how Rocky Balboa goes into the first fight with Apollo Creed. It's like if I can just go the distance almost. Like Saruta's trying to win the title, but just being able to prove that he can hang with Terry Funk is an achievement in and of itself. Yeah. This isn't the first time that he's challenged for the NWA world title. He has challenged Jack Briscoe in Japan before. And he's also challenged Dory Funk Jr. within the first couple of months of him even being a professional wrestler. Because Jumbo Saruta was sent after he had his crazy run at the Olympics where he'd like only taken up amateur wrestling a couple of years earlier and finished in like the top 10 in the Olympics <laughs> in 1972. Immediately after that, it's a bidding war between New Japan and All Japan and he comes to All Japan. And then they send him over to Amarillo. And that's where he spends most of 1973 before coming to back to All Japan, doing the rounds in the Amarillo Territory. And they're so impressed by him already, he takes such a knack to it that one of his first few matches is challenging Dory Funk Jr. And they go 52 minutes. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, it wasn't actually in Texas. It was uh, in Albuquerque. <laughs> For I am the mayor of Albuquerque. <laughs> With Funk, my childhood experience of Terry Funk was very similar to what you're describing, although a little bit more pronounced. I I guess all I really saw through my initial WWE-only like lens was that famous clip where he's put in a dumpster and like launched off a stage for the new age outlaws like references to who he was in the past but just this sort of like old man that just turns up like who had a reverence to him but a reverence i didn't fully understand and appreciate until i started diversifying my palette 
partly mm. through the creation of this podcast. Mm. He had that really awkward bit where he was like one of the hardcore guys tasked with um, amping up Dean Ambrose for his match against Brock Lesnar, which was awful. <laughs> I was thinking, because you didn't start watching wrestling until after WCW died. Yeah. So it's always difficult to try and remember to frame your knowledge of wrestling from a point where I was already starting to disengage from WWE and, and everything else and going more into Ring of Honor um, and the online culture. But I would guess that would mean that maybe the first time you really encountered Terry Funk, if you were watching it at the time, would have been during the ECW one-night stand. Not the 2005 one, because Terry Funk chose to go to the Hardcore Homecoming reunion show that took place at the ECW Arena that Shane Douglas organised that also included like TNA wrestlers that weren't allowed to turn up on WWE, ECW, like your Ravens and so on. Would that have been the Dudleys at the time? No, the Dudleys were under contract. It was like the last thing they did for the WWE before they exited their contract and then went to TNA. Because, remember, they, they had the main event. It was them against Tommy Dreamer and the Sandman. Oh, of course, yes. And they put Dreamer through the flaming table. But with Terry Funk, whilst he didn't do that one, he did come back a year later when they were rebuilding the ECW brand. And it was essentially a rerun of the Raven Cactus Jack Dreamer Terry Funk feud, but with Edge taking the place of Raven. Mm. And then on the night, it also they included Lita and Beulah into the match as well. Oh, yes. And that was the first time you would have seen Terry Funk. And I think at that point, because he was 50, if I remember right, he was 53. They always said he was 53 when I was watching the Attitude Era, Terry Funk. So that would place him in this All Japan match as just having gone past 30, I suppose. Because I think this is 1976. June 11th, 1976, to be precise. So, yeah, Funk would be about 31, 32 at this stage. So, already probably a bit of a veteran, I would assume. You know, at least nine or eight or nine years under the belt. Not the literal belt. But, um, uh, so, yeah, um, so that meant that when you saw him on One Night Stand, if you did watch that, he would have been 58 at that point. And that still wasn't, I mean, that was the last high profile match I think he had. I don't know if he ever did anything in TNA when he was in his 60s, but he was still going. (laughs) he kept going until relatively recently i think his last match was it was in the 2010s i know that much i know that he he did a royal rumble for pwg and it came down to him and rowdy roddy piper and funk stopped the match to say before we go on i would like us to take a moment to say a prayer (laughs) and he and roddy piper pause in the ring and before the prayer's over or just when he's about to say amen uh, Terry Funk just whacks him over the head with the microphone (laughs) that's amazing but that's one of the things I love about watching this match because we see technical wrestler Terry Funk although we do also see a bit of the wilder characteristics that we'll get later on though we even see in all Japan when we covered the Funks against Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen, one of the first matches that Dave Meltzer gave five stars to. Oh, yes, yes. And that was more wild man brawling Terry Funk by then. But I suppose because he had the NWA World Championship, it was incumbent upon him to be more traditional. Mm. He had to be like, very technical sorts... and very proper, it seemed. Yeah, especially in the first fall, you could replace Terry Funk with Dory Funk Jr., and it wouldn't look out of place yeah. in any of the execution, any of the moves that are being done, any of the holds. I don't know enough about Dory Funk Jr. to know if he would have then, as Terry did in the second and third fall, maybe start to act up a bit more of the aggressor and 
close those fists at a couple of moments in the match. Mm. But it was still fundamentals of wrestling. It was still arm bars, hip tosses, leg locks, head locks, and then towards the end, suplexes. Yes. Well, especially for the very first fall, it's it's when Jumbo changes the pace and like starts speeding it up that Jumbo catches him with sunset flip for the first fall. Well, that's another one of those things where you're looking at what is the NWA champion's role in this match, and it is to make the other the challenger look good because it's the challenger that's still going to be doing the next tour of Japan when Funk will go and then come back three to six months later. Yeah. And I wonder if that's why they structure it very often with the two out of three falls. So that Saruta gets almost like the, not the honourable win, but the visible win. Like if it was a traditional one fall match, he would have won. He would have got the visual pin. And yeah, you can always say that. Yeah. He got the literal pin. But it's what the, it's two, a two out of three falls match, what the visual pin is to a singles match. Mm. Like they did with Randy Orton, Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam, famously. So it's like, look, oh, you, you do get your pin. I get, I get to actually win the match, but you do get your pin. But that's for very different reasons. <laughs> yeah, the structure. It is a three act structure where it is a technical, very, very even Stevens match. Where at first Funk slightly overwhelms Saruta, but Saruta starts getting back into it and then starts to excel. And then it's Terry Funk fighting from underneath. And as you say, when it opens up and it speeds up, it's there where Jumbo is able to out-technique the technical wrestler and get him in the pinning combination that he's not able to escape from. It is weird seeing a speedster Jumbo Saruta. <laughs> well, yeah, he's a bit, he's a fair bit leaner at this point. Yeah. You don't appreciate sometimes also how big Terry Funk was. Like, Jumbo was so big that he got called Jumbo. Yeah. And Terry Funk didn't look significantly shorter than him. No. I mean, Terry Funk wasn't a short man, you're right, but wrestling was the land of giants back then, wasn't it? So, Well, no, it wasn't. It, no, that's the thing. Like, It was the land of giants when Hogan took over, really, when it was McMahon. Up to that point, Bruno Sammartino was like 5'10". Yeah, but he was also 5'10 wide. Yes, but it wasn't the case of the land of the giants because it was like Andre the Giant was the giant mm. and he was like the novelty that would go traveling around from territory to territory and it was really Vince McMahon that really pushed the aesthetic of the taller wrestlers being important I mean there were ter- obviously there were junior heavyweights but there were territories where the junior heavyweight was the top star Danny Hodge famously okay yeah uh, around the Oklahoma territory Jim Ross grew up in um but yeah I mean they didn't need to be hulking great physiques either I mean you know after the Funks and Briscoe the perennial champion that Jumbo would challenge later on was Harley Race and he had a big gut but he wasn't (laughs) it wasn't a sculpted physique funnily enough actually when you look at Terry Funk he actually leans out in his middle-aged years I remember commenting that when he had the last of his five-star matches which was the can't remember if it was the I quit match or if it was I think it was the I Quit match with Ric Flair. It was one of the matches he had with Flair in 89. Yeah. And he had like a a six-pack going on at that point. But at this point, he's a bit more just like... He's not fat, but he's got a bit more heft. He's not shredded. He's cut, but he's not shredded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, isn't cut and shredded the same thing? In terms of the ranking, it goes cut, ripped, shredded. Whatever it is, it's an area where we hold no real... I was going to say, hold no real weights. No, the weight's the problem. Yeah, the weight is the problem. We hold too much weight. Yes, well, you've outplayed me there quite spectacularly. 
So yeah, the first fall, and it's the longest fall as well. And I tell you what it reminded me a lot of, actually, because All Japan essentially followed in the footsteps of the funk style of wrestling. Like, Dory Funk Jr., as we said, was the key trainer of Jumbo Saruta. And they always had that more North American-inspired style of wrestling compared to the more martial arts influence of Inoki and the way that New Japan was presented as, like, proto-mixed martial arts. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, because at one point in towards the end part of this match, I remember the Jumbo rocks Terry Funk with a, essentially a Funk uppercut that sends Funk wobbly, sends him silly. And it's just funny just seeing that lineage because obviously then to later years, Mitsuhara Masawa and his elbows and forearms are essentially a continuation of that type of strike, which was the preferred All Japan version of striking. But... The way that they work those opening, the first 10 to 15 minutes of the match are arm drags into arm bars. It's all about moving the momentum. Like there's a point where he's got like the arms behind him. I don't know what the move's called. It's not a double arm chicken wing, but you know where they're pulling them back. Yeah. It's sort of like a surfboard stretch, but standing, sort of. Yeah, it's like the top half of the surfboard, but they're seated. And the other ones, rather than turning it into the, like, that. that's the Mexican version of the that we see nowadays and then like they spend a good two minutes on just saruta trying very gradually to shift the momentum and the weight dispersal mm. and i remember that they were still doing that in those misawa kabashi matches in 96 97 towards the end of the all japan five-star period that we were covering where they would work a wrist lock and you'd see like misawa and kabashi having to struggle for every inch of the movement of the arm or the wrist that was under control by the opponents yeah to gain that control so again it's funny seeing 25 years after this match happens almost they're still following that format they're doing more especially in the finishing straight in this match it great the big moves are a gut wrench suplex both of them giving each other gut wrench suplexes and double underhook suplexes that you know in later years become a german suplex well the yeah the german suplex is very early it's like usually when the German suplex is done in later years, it's a lower squat that the other guy does to give a larger landing area for the person taking the bump. <laughs> and this one is essentially they're both standing, and I think it's Jumbo that does it to Funk. He lifts him and he's gradually like inching him up and up and up so that his head and shoulders will hit the mat when they go down. Mm. Rather than it starting off, like I say, with him as a squat underneath, he's like lifting him so that he goes underneath. It's not like Kurt Angles or um, even Benoit's. It's not Snap. Benoit's was a bit more like that insofar as the the bump, because just Benoit was a sadist and wanted people to bump over a minimal amount of area on their body as possible. Yeah. With the wrist locks... And it was fascinating in this match, and like, as you think back to like the Kabashi and Misawa matches that you, that you were referring to, they make such a little move mean so much. It's kind of weird now you've put the Kabashi Misawas in my head that they still had elements of that, but then were dropping each other on their heads so much as well. King's Road was just like sadistic when you think about it. <laughs> Over time, but what's also amazing as well when you think about Saruta and Funk was that Saruta gradually essentially created that style of wrestling because Giant Bubble wasn't able to have those kind of matches that Saruta was able to have with Misawa and 
as we always say, like one of the great what ifs of what could have been a, a series of matches to match the Okada Tanahashi's if we'd have got a dozen Saruta Misawa matches from 90 to 95 or so. Yeah. They could have been some of the greatest matches ever seen. The fact that Saruta in his 40s was able to do that more high intensity, you know, the Saruta of such fundamental basics of this match then goes on 18 years down the line to be such a key part of those fast-paced, awesome six-man tags that we just gushed over when we were covering those for the Five Star Project, that he was able to... Maybe not just that he was adapting to that, he was creating that format, him and then Tenru when they started having their matches and bringing in Stan Hansen as well, and that that all comes from this. And as I say, you've got like the fundamentals of the first half of this match, and then the high drama of the second one, but it not necessarily... of the second half, and especially the third fall, but it not necessarily being crazy big moves as we understand it but these Mm. were crazy big moves for the 70s someone kicking out of a double underhook suplex is crazy because i think that that was the move that dory funk beat jack briscoe with when he won the title so it's sort of like the back suplex in revenants because they have to do like a double down of exhaustion to protect the back suplex don't they yeah yeah the 1970s version of 2023 jim Cornette would be spitting feathers at the disrespect shown to the double underhook suplex in this match (laughs) and arguably arguably would have been even more bigoted but that's by the by (laughs) i don't know if that's well i guess it is possible but But you don't want to dwell on what that would mean too much. Yeah, we don't want to see what that actually looks like. But again, as far as adapting to styles and everything, I don't know if there's anyone of his era that adapted to the wrestling world better than Terry Funk. Put it this way, Terry Funk was the only wrestler who was relevant to me as a wrestling fan in the 90s that was wrestling in this 70s era of wrestling and was one of the best practitioners of that style. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, wrestlers who are in their 40s and 50s and are still a part of the current climates is a lot more prevalent. You've got your Jerichos, your Edges, your Christians, your, even until his heart issues, your Triple H's. Mm. Randy Orton's now got 20 plus years under the belt at this stage. Oh, that's insane. I don't know how much more we've got left of him, but that's mad to think he's got two decades Yeah, but it was only Terry Funk that was doing these matches in the 70s that whilst he wouldn't necessarily be in the main event outside of ECW, but he was still part of the relevancy and he was adapting to that world. He was busting out moonsaults in his 50s. Yeah. And whilst we were saying in the Danielson Ricky Starks thing, weirdly him moving towards hardcore wrestling was probably what allowed him to prolong his style because he wasn't having to do all the bumps off of everything. And it was using that, don't want to say shortcuts, but... And whilst they are working through everything in this match, there's still a lot of bump and feed. Yeah. Especially that point where Saruta takes control of the technical portion after Terry Funk at the start shows the reason he's the champ because he's sort of overwhelming the younger, more energetic Terry Saruta. Taller. Yeah, everything. Like, it's physical superior in Saruta, but he has the mind. But then the physical superiority and the fact that Saruta does know all the moves means that he's hitting these arm drags and arm bars and and constantly going back to it and so terry funk would try to rally out of it and he couldn't do it until the second fall comes Mm. and he even has to take a breather outside and then when he comes in and it's funny because he shakes saruta's hand as if to say you got the better of me and then almost immediately after that when they're going in to engage he starts slapping him around yeah and trying to rile him trying to get him off of his game keep him unsettled because 
he's difficult to work out tactically, so you've got to get under his skin. And he succeeds in doing so, and then when Funk wins, it's through showing why he's the champion, because he's got that technical proficiency and ability to adapt in the situation. What I do love is that maybe one of the reasons that it's good to call it in the ring is that when there's a moment where you see that opening and you both know how to do it, you can adapt to it. My example being that there's a moment where Funk he goes for a swinging punch at Saruta, and Saruta ducks it, but it causes Funk to do almost like a, a 360 around. Yeah. But then he realizes, because of how he's postured now, he's in the perfect position to give Saruta a hip toss to take control of it after failing to do so with the punch. So he goes for the wild thing, but then he sees himself in the way to out-wrestle him. And similarly, the reason he wins the second fall is because Saruta sends him in the ropes the intention of catching him in an abdominal stretch mm. but funk goes around with it it becomes a struggle for who's gonna hit it and then funk adapts it and turns it into the rolling crab pin yeah disorienting saruta and putting him into it so that when they stop he's got him in the pinning position and he gets the pin back and then that that plays into the third fall but that's to us eyes in the 2023 to see someone do that hold it's almost comedic yes it's like Castagnoli doing the giant swing. Like they're taking the mick, basically. It's trying. I have seen someone do the rolling pin in WWE, but I can't remember who it was. But it wasn't someone held in high esteem. Danielson probably has done it. Had to take the piss. <laughs> well, was it possibly Daniel Bryan? Or Tyson Kidd in one of those Saturday morning slam matches. Yeah. Like, it was an early morning kids TV show, essentially. So they actually weren't allowed to do a lot of heavy strikes or anything. Mm. So that was the opportunity for guys like Brian Danielson and and Tyson Kidd, and I think Sheamus was there as well, to do a little bit of a Les Kellett or those 70s wrestling Johnny Saint escapology chain wrestling style of matches. Mm. We should do that, actually, for a future match of the week, one of those Saturday morning slam matches. Seeing... uh... How they, like, goof off, basically. And I also think Mick Foley was made the general manager of that show. <laughs> it was a very, very odd little time. And that also fit maybe also within that, like, mix match challenge period as well, where things were a little bit goofier. Yeah, well, that was all on YouTube, wasn't it? So that didn't really... Yeah, like... yeah. That... Was it Facebook? I think it was a Facebook thing. Facebook Watch and YouTube, I think. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then when we go into the final four, where it is the equivalent of the big moves, it's it's not that King's Road fighting spirit thing where one person's fighting from underneath and they're doing those big elbow exchanges and then it's just exhaustion that wins it. Whilst exhaustion does play into the match, it's more like they're both equally in a similar situation, but then what it ultimately is almost a semi-fluke. It's like half fluke, half skill, because Funk does a leapfrog, lands on his foot, lands, but seems to jar his back slightly that makes it slower for him to turn around and in that moment saruta has also gone for a leapfrog but because funk hasn't seen him and hasn't ducked down he's essentially landed into funk and funk's realized i'm right by the ropes drops him on it throat first a stun gun and that's enough to win the match for him it is a very smooth sequence again it like that hip toss part it looks natural and weirdly like there's another moment where a leapfrog is barely executed correctly but it almost plays up to the exhaustion and one of the things we both noticed was i don't know how more or less exhausted these guys were than they usually are but my god the sweat yeah the sweat was flying from the first few minutes the ref, i think two minutes in the ref looks like he, he does his um the stance referees do for a submission where they're sort of like hands on knees looking over and he's dripping like a knackered fridge let alone the actual wrestlers 
Lighting back in those days was intense and hot. I mean, I acted in the 90s on the theatre, and the lighting back then was so... Like, you sweat up a storm on stage. I think during some of that improv shows, I uh, when we were on stage at the Bedworth Arts Centre, I, I, I felt very warm at times there. I say stage. <laughs> there was no physical stage, but... There you go. There was no elevation, yeah. put it that way. Whilst there was plenty of elevation in this match insofar as Funk elevating the standing of Saruza in the eyes of the fans, I would think. I mean, I've got to think, and I think he was. Saruza was genuinely in the talks to be a potential touring world champion, not just for the cup of coffee that Giant Babber essentially paid to have three times whilst he was the top guy of all Japan. Like, Saruta was the guy that they thought... And also, maybe Giant Babber would have been willing to loan him out for a couple of years for him to be the touring world champion. Yeah. Although then, when they had a relationship with the AWA in the 1980s, Saruta did have a run as the AWA world champion, beating Nick Bockwinkle for it and then losing it to Rick Martel, I think. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Saruta was, like, very quickly well-respected by everyone in the business. And again, you can see, like, he is not three years into his career at this point in this match. Mm. And he holds his own against Funk and does everything. He does everything on the technical level. He does everything on the performance level displaying when he needs to his annoyance his frustrations but also i guess that playing into the inexperience of why he falls at the end and his disappointment with himself when he loses the second fall i think he's like slapping the mat in frustration yeah and everything like that i don't doubt that saruta could have done this the role that funk has going all over the territories maybe they felt like a japanese wrestler where it's not just as they would have been presented in north america in the 60s 70s and so on with the pearl harbor attacks no it's just like the superior to everyone (laughs) he's just a good athletic bloke (laughs) unacceptable (laughs) although it is funny really when you look at it that there is no great lingering resentments between america and japan and it seemed to be like fairly quickly Mm. maybe that's just because i'm uh, you know we're british and we you know there's still suspicions of the germans to this day usually related to football but i think that's personally because we won but at what cost it cost us a lot of status in the world and we've never really recovered it and there's i I think like a cultural chip on the shoulder whereas america okay yes in, in terms of car making the japanese well i guess that's what yokozuna represented in the 90s yeah fear of japan as an economic powerhouse, not as a military powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there also wasn't any long-held history of rebelling from them or anything like the British or yeah or anything like that. There's Although there obviously were the Japanese-American internment camps, which the country still hasn't really come to terms with that much. No. Wow, this went some really weird places. <laughs> but the funny thing was, Jumbo Saruta, when he did retire from wrestling, was did move to America to become a PE teacher. Mm. Gotta imagine. You know, we saw what grumpy Jumbo Saruta looked like in the wrestling ring. You have that, a grumpy middle-aged six-foot-five guy. You'd want to climb the rope to get away from him. <laughs> Who you know could slap and stretch the shit out of you. Yeah. Where's Billy? Dead. Just embedded in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> right. Damn it, Jumbo, you had your one last month. <laughs> oh, the amount of paperwork we've got to fill out for this. <laughs> God, I'm just picturing him as a PE teacher. Did you enjoy this match, or was it more like like a historical document to you that you appreciate what it meant? But like, if you were gonna like, if I was gonna say, I'll pick some random wrestling matches for you to enjoy for fun. Would this be a fun watch for you? Uh, no, 
But that's not a slight against Jumbo. I think it's just more what I've seen of his style is obviously like, as we've covered already, the six-man tags, which I loved. And that really showed me that. That really did hammer home when we were doing the five-star project of, look, wrestling isn't just one thing, which I knew, but I never really like took on board until we did the five-star project. But if, if any one person shows that wrestling is more than one thing, it's Terry Funk as well. Exactly. And I, it was a historical document in the sense of we got to see a different side of Terry. I, I didn't want to do for this a brawler Terry Funk match. So when you said, oh, let's do this match against Jumbo, and I saw how young Terry looked, I'm like, okay, cool. We're, we're on to what I wanted. Didn't even have a beard. That, that's unsettling, to be honest. Terry without, Terry without a beard. Don't like it. <laughs> but yeah, we, I mean, you, so we've seen NWA champion Terry Funk. We also saw wild brawling cowboy, but in like, still within a, an in-ring traditional sense with the Bruiser Brody Stan Hansen match. And then we saw the first version of his reinvention middle-aged guy in his feud with Ric Flair and then you saw that extend to his run in ECW and also the exploding barbed wire match we saw with Atsushi Onita. I don't know if Onita might have been at the ringside area watching on when this is going on. You know what would make this better? Explosions. (laughs) Cheers Onita. Yeah. But again like that Onita took like the emoting but it being relatively subtle in this match you know like as Funk subtly becomes more ruthless as time goes on and Saruta starts to get more frustrated without him going all overboard whereas then when you get to Funk and Onita it's operatic screaming wild explosions and that Funk could adapt to that and then goes on to the even more with the King of the Death matches and that becomes his personality within the, and then he's able to go to WWF at the height of the Attitude Era and be a key part of that. Yeah. And he also had the period uh, where he was in the WWF where he was he was one of uh, Hogan's touring opponents when he was first running as WWF champion. He was there in the WWF in like 85, 86. And that was when he got the beard and he started to start to change up the character more. And obviously then the territories and doing all, you know, Dusty Rhodes sucks eggs and (laughs) empty arena matches with Jerry Lawler. And they were saying, actually, that he was showing that personality that he was essentially like the starters before you got to the main course of the Dory Funk Jr. match, where Terry Funk would go to the territories, picking up his brother and the Funk family as the best wrestling family in town. And the local hero then challenges Terry Funk to a match, beats Terry Funk, and that's what brings Dory Funk in for him to challenge for the world title. Uh, I don't know. I guess they didn't do it the other way around because I can't imagine Dory Funk Jr. cutting a great promo and drawing a crowd in in that regard. And that was another <laughs> thing. Like Terry Funk could do the technical proficiency that the touring NWA World Champion had, but could also talk them into the talk them in through wilder, more over the top characters, which meant he was able to fit into the WWF. Yeah both in the Hogan era and in the Attitude era and in the WCW era as a rival to Ric Flair. And yeah, I mean, that angle after the Ricky Steamboat match where he's like, I'd love to challenge you, Rick. And it's like, we've got a top contenders. You haven't wrestled in years. You've been in Hollywood. You're you're saying I'm not good enough, Rick? Is that what you're saying? I'm just an, a dumb old man. Yeah, the banana nose freak. <laughs> I'll power drive you through this table. <laughs> and then suffocate them with a plastic bag. <laughs> I think just for that level of versatility is why I can understand why there are people, and I think Eddie Kingston's one of them, that argues that Terry Funk's the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah, I mean, he's plug and play. 
I think if you say who's the most, who's adapted to wrestling the most, I think you can say that maybe Funk's adapted more than Jericho because whilst Jericho changed his character, he never really changed his style. He's still doing those middle rope drop kicks and everything. Yeah, and the like, and the uh... Uh, not necessarily successfully. <laughs> <laughs> But Pat, well, that's the thing. Like Terry Funk, I don't know of him having any failed gimmicks. Whatever. I mean, they were all kind of of the same oeuvre. But he just aged up and got even crazier as time yeah. went on. Beefing with the insane clown posse at one point as well. He stayed culturally relevant in that sense. Yeah. If you want to see something beyond the brawling Terry Funk, and if you want to see seventies wrestling that won't necessarily send you to sleep, I think this match is a good example of that. You can see that match, like that being a match that that Luthez would be fine with. And then that he would go all the way to the other end and still have these compelling matches. You know, that brawl with Ric Flair was an amazing brawl. And I, I definitely think, like, if I'd have had more of an attachment to the younger version of Funk, like, I, I do have affection for him, but he was also, like... I, I had terrible ageism with wrestling when I was watching it in 98. I guess because... Mm. Maybe because Hogan and Savage and everyone in WCW was doing it such a disservice. Whereas Funk, you know, this is a guy that's held the world title and the main evented all over the place, and he was willing to lose to fucking, you know... Uh, too cold scorpio in a tag team match you know yeah he lost to mark henry in a king of the ring qualifier <laughs> i'm telling you now hogan and savage wouldn't have got in that dumpster <laughs> no but maybe that's because funk was a more naturally giving guy whose love was the wrestling business and he was you know he grew up in it you know from his father yeah owning the territory of amarillo so yeah he was the only man of that era to remain relevant in our era really we I mean, Dusty Rhodes was there, but not as a wrestler. That's my point. As a wrestler, he was still yes. relevant. He was having matches in 1998 that I was emotionally compelled by. I think a fantastic match from a storytelling perspective is the one that he had with Mick Foley when he was having his crisis of character in between the two matches he has with Austin as Dude Love, where he becomes the corporate shill, and then he kind of becomes disillusioned with it because Vince McMahon then says, okay, well, then Dude Love couldn't win, so Goldust goes after him. He's like, but you trusted me. Yeah. And then Vince gives him a talking to. And it's like he was saying, Austin's like... He's like that. He's got the angel on one shoulder, but the angel is Stone Cold Steve Austin, <laughs> and the devil on the other shoulder is Vince McMahon. And Vince McMahon deliberately puts him in a hardcore match with Terry Funk, where it's like, um, Mick Foley's like, "But you're gonna make me hurt my friend, and you're gonna make me get hurt because I know what this psychopath's gonna do to me." Yeah. And Terry Funk was ultimately like the fourth supporting character as we were talking in a recent one about Takeshita being the third wheel of the Omega Callis. Like Terry Funk was the fourth wheel of the Austin Foley. McMahon storyline but it worked and you know he had to take a beating and lose but and then of course famously he was there to give Mick Foley a bit of extra time to recover in the Hell in the Cell match by just taking a choke slam out of his trainers <laughs> in the King of the Ring <laughs> Hulk Hogan wouldn't take a finger poke for someone else yeah. <laughs> anyway we love our some fun the problem with any wrestling there is such a clear post-Hogan, pre-Hogan, as much as anything because then there's more video footage of stuff and then even more so when you go into like the 12 months runs and everything and like, that's why I always thought that Shawn Michaels had that period of time where he's seen as having surpassed Brett because he was then there during the period of time when he could have lots of televised great matches that would get the discussion going online whereas Brett had to rely more on a less physically adept roster Mm. and fewer outlets to have those great matches outside of the four pay-per-views and a, an occasional monday night raw with the one two three kid you know or an in your house yeah and so with funk 
because he got through to that period, but then that meant that so much of the majority of the stuff you got is those wild brawls. And if that's not your cup of tea, and unfortunately, as time went on, he could be in some, especially when he went to WCW, he was in some really dumb storylines. Yeah. In that time when he was feuding with the silver and black version of the NWO and having uh, tried to recreate the magic with 2000 Ric Flair. Uh, The magic wasn't there. Yeah. The fact that Terry Funk could be at the the cutting edge of what and ECW was the cutting edge and he fit it like no one else from that era could have. Except Dusty Rhodes had a brief run where he was doing his version of the hardcore wrestling with his feud with Steve Carino. But that was, again, they didn't build the main event of their first pay-per-view around that. Yeah. And they could do that with Terry Funk. Have you seen Beyond the Mat? Yes. Because Funk is one of the three key parts of that match. And that was, again, another way that I... That was probably the where I grew the most affectionate about Terry Funk was watching him through the eyes of that. Yeah, I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, well, we'll have to do it for Silver Screen Visions. Uh, it'll be its 25th anniversary next year, so that'll be a logical time to do it. But Terry Funk, and it's maybe one of the five or six key lines I think I've ever learned from wrestling. It might be the best summation of wrestling and wrestlers and the craziness of those people and the mentality you have to be to be part of that world. And it's him sitting by Mick Foley and you're seeing the footage of them doing all those King of the Deathmatch stuff. And Terry Funk just reflecting and saying, you know, it's funny. The more you hurt each other, the more money you make. And the more money you make, the more you like each other. <laughs> and he, lo- he did love Mick, didn't he? <laughs> and that came across the mutual love in, in Mick Foley's autobiography. And that he saw so much of him in there. And again, Funk... I mean, you look at like when Mick Foley had that King of the Death match. In the quarterfinals, he faced Terry Gordy. And Terry Gordy just did not know how to adapt to this world. And he was obviously going through his own issues. His health issues that had left it, led him to leave Old Japan. Uh, whereas Funk just was able to work within that world and get annoyed at the lack of explosions on the screen. <laughs> but yeah. <sighs> yeah, Terry Funk. What a life. What a career. What a legend. And as sad as it is for him to go, the fact that that guy reached the 80s and, it, and his wife had gone as well. So. Yeah. And like he literally, the reason he was no longer NWA world champion was that his wife left him because of the, and we've seen that touring schedule that Ric Flair had as NWA world champ. Yeah. That, that thing that made the rounds. And Funk did that for like two years. And in order to win his wife back, he gave that up. Yeah. Whereas Ric Flair most certainly did not give that up. He, did, he just gave the wives up. <laughs> he kept the schedule without the belt. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Rick's Rick's a beast in more ways than one. Look, Terry Funk didn't go around leaving numerous people uh, with unpaid debts. No. (laughs) Or or causing any kind of friction backstage. I don't know anyone who has a bad word to say about Terry Funk. Yeah. Really. And neither do we after watching this match. No, no. He's... His cultural imprint on wrestling overall. Maybe one of the most significant. Yeah. Maybe it's him that is why we have hardcore wrestling. As we know. Maybe the reason that we have these death matches in AEW is more because of Terry Funk than anyone. Because he was doing those wild brawls in the... Se- you know, he was throwing chairs into the ring as a madman back in the 70s and 80s as well. Yeah. And then the times went with it. And, uh, and he even encouraged fans to throw chairs into the ring quite famously. Wow, well, there we go. Yeah, I think he's woven into wrestling's fabric forever. Forever! Forever! <laughs> Well, we can't go any better than that, so let's let's finish it there. We've got some more funk ones that we could do in the future, and we, the Jumbo Love is there as well. Just two of the best. Genuinely two of the best. Yeah, there's not, there's not much else to say apart from... The- Four and a quarter stars. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I'm sure that was the 1976 equivalent of a five-star match. If Meltzer had been around in there, he would have probably given that match five stars. Yeah. But hey-ho. 
Yeah, so whilst that was more of a celebration, we are going to do a celebration with the second half of this double bill of commemoration match of the weeks, but it's going to be a bit hard. It was harder to pick a match, and it was harder to accept that this is someone we're having to do. I mean, there was a very easy match that we could have done, but... Sadly, we've already done it. We've already done it because another person in that match has already passed on. But uh, it's your pick next, Simon. So what match are we covering? And obviously, I think people can already tell from the way that we're saying it why we're talking about it. But might as well make it clear. What is our match for the next match of the week? It's a match that took place during the lockdown era of wrestling. I'm I'm getting some dirty looks and, and we'll cover why I'm getting those dirty looks in the episode itself. It's the Firefly Funhouse match between John Cena and Bray Wyatt. Obviously, the late Bray Wyatt now. Still, it's weird. It's weird to say, still. It will always be weird to say. Yeah. It will always be weird. <sighs> but until then, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, to give some more Terry Funk or Jumbo Saruta recommendations, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of words in egg-sucking dog. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L, A for the A at the end of Saruta, N for the N at the start of NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. The NWA World's Championship that Terry Funk loved, but not as much as he loved it as his wife. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for everything, Terry Funk. And we hope that the rest of you have a great week. Until the next week. Yeah.